take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. I want to thank you all who prayed for uh, our elders as we were gone the last couple of days uh, on our elders retreat. We, uh, we were very grateful for uh, you and very grateful for how the Lord uh, used that time. And uh, we're encouraged uh, because we feel like we're, we're coming back uh, really in, a, in alignment uh, with one another. And we believe that the Lord um, uh, really uh, led through, uh, through that uh, retreat together. And I want to just let you know, uh, Lord willing, on March 1st, uh, we're going to talk a little bit more in here on Sunday morning about um, some of the fruit that came from our, our time and uh, where, where we believe um, the Lord wants to focus our attention in terms of uh, our mission as a church, in terms of uh, a vision for the future, and in terms of the next steps that we as a, as a whole, as a congregation, can take uh, so I would just uh, encourage you to, um, to be here on that day as we as a church uh, really turn our attention to the Word and to the Lord um, for how He wants to work in our particular congregation at this particular moment in time uh, as we continue in His timeless mission uh, that began 2,000 years ago and, uh, and before that and is continuing until Jesus returns. So um, again, thank you. And uh, as we turn our attention to Genesis 6 this morning, uh, we are going to uh, continue in an attitude of prayer uh, that we just uh, engaged in. Uh, what an what a important prayer uh, that, that was that we just sung together, uh, that the light of Christ would be seen in us uh, and that the Lord would show us uh, from his word um, truths unchanged from the dawn of time. Uh, and that we would, that he would speak to us through his word. This is, this is the word of the Lord that we are reading, and uh, we want to hear his voice. So read with me, Genesis 6, verses 1 through 8. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men, of, uh, the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. In the last few sections of Genesis, we have seen a contrast has been a major theme. In Genesis 4, we saw the contrast between Cain and Abel. Two very different hearts, two different offerings, two different results. 
We saw the contrast between Cain's line and Seth's line. Cain's line marked by development, but also defiance. Seth's line marked by dependence, calling on the name of the Lord, walking with God, expressing faith in God's promise to bring relief from the curse. So we've seen these contrasts between humans, but today we're going to see another contrast, this time between a painfully wicked humanity on the one hand and a patient and gracious God on the other hand. The main thing that I think we're going to see in this passage today is that sin is great, but God is greater. Sin is great, but God is greater. We're going to look at this text in two sections. The first section, verses 1 through 4, I'm labeling perversion and patience. The second section, verses 5 through 8, I'm labeling grief and grace. And in both sections, we're going to see great sin and an even greater God. So let's begin with verses 1 through 4. Just look at verse 1 as we consider this section, perversion and patience. Verse 1, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. So pause right there. So this is the setting of this passage. Uh, Now, chapters 4 and 5 focused on two lines, right? We just talked about that, from uh, Adam's sons, Cain and Seth. Now, each one of those lines was recording just one individual after another, but a look at Genesis 5 shows us that there were way more people, many, many more people on the earth than just these individual lines. Uh, We see in Genesis 5, Adam had other sons and daughters, And every descendant of Adam had other sons and daughters. So while our attention has been on just some specific lines, really what we have is multiplication happening, widespread uh, fruitfulness, multiplying of humanity. Uh, Some have estimated that as many as 4 billion people were on the earth by the time of the flood. So we're talking widespread multiplication of humanity. So this is the setting of this passage. As we move to verse 2, though, uh, verse 1 specifically draws our attention to the daughters born to humanity as humanity multiplied. And that sets up what happens in verse 2. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. So by itself... This verse may not seem like much of a problem, uh, but as the rest of this passage unfolds, which we just read, it becomes clear, whatever's going on here is wicked. It's perverse. It's something that greatly displeases God. The language of this verse even echoes the language of the first sin in Genesis 3. You might remember it says that that the woman saw that the tree was good or attractive, And took the fruit. Well, the same language is used here. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, good, and they took them for themselves. So the question is, who are the sons of God? And who are the daughters of men? Well, 
that is a really hard question to answer. <laughs> um, but rather than just give an answer, I'd like to briefly walk through how to answer this question. So the fact of the matter is, we as Christians encounter hard texts in the Bible. Whether that's in our personal Bible study, and you know, maybe if we're reading this in our Bible plan, we're like, that was weird, and then we just move on. Uh, but maybe we encounter it in family worship. And son or daughter asks, uh, Dad, what, what are the sons of God and the daughters of men? You know, like, ask your mother. Um, or maybe we're in a Sunday school class or we're in a small group Bible study and we're dealing with this like, what is going on here? So what do we, what do, we do? How do we answer this? How do we figure out what's going on here? Well, uh, I, I want to just kind of briefly walk through this, but I do think it's worth considering um, how we can approach an answer. And let me just begin by making two comments about how we should approach a difficult text like this. First, whenever we come to a difficult text, we need to be humble. This is a very difficult text. And there are several different possible answers. And scholars are divided and unsure about exactly who these people are. So while I believe there's evidence in scripture that points us in a certain way, we can't be certain nor should we be dogmatic about our answer. Second, whenever we come to a difficult text, we should not let the difficult details cause us to miss the main point of the passage. So in this text, the identity of the sons of God and the daughters of man is not really that clear, but the main idea of this passage is very clear. Moses is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, painting a picture of how the population of humans multiplied, and as the population multiplied, wickedness multiplied. So whoever these groups were, it doesn't change the point of the passage, and we should praise God that we can see that and understand that, even if it's hard to discern exactly who he is referring to here. So let's talk about how to approach this text, and the main thing we want to do is let Scripture interpret scripture as we ask this question. So among Bible-believing Christians, there are basically three different interpretations of who these groups are. First is that the sons of God are men from the godly line of Seth, and the daughters of men are women from the wicked line of Cain. That's number one. The second possible interpretation is that the sons of God are wicked kings who forced to marry them. The third is that the sons of God are angels and the daughters of men are human women. So, first, the first interpretation. Uh, it's appealing. Seth's line has clearly been depicted as godly. Cain's line has been depicted as worldly. And later in scripture, God instructs his people not to intermarry with unrighteous people of other nations. But this interpretation has some problems. And the main one is that throughout this passage of Genesis 6, 1 to 8, man, that word in daughters of man, man clearly refers to humankind in general, not any one specific line of humanity. So it's hard to see how daughters of man can only refer to one line. The second interpretation that the sons of God were wicked kings who would... Um, who, who took wives for themselves, it would, it would fit the passage, 
it wouldn't contradict anything. The problem is that there's just hardly any evidence in Scripture that would lead us to that conclusion. The third interpretation, that the sons of God are angels, is probably the most foreign concept to us as modern readers. But I believe that the evidence of Scripture would lead us to that conclusion. So first, every time that the term son of God is used in the Old Testament, it's referring to an angelic being. So three times in the book of Job, the sons of God refers to angels who are not on earth. Uh, and most notably, at the, the beginning of the book, you might recall in chapters 1 and 2, there's two different times when the sons of God, among whom are Satan, come and present themselves to God uh, in heaven. Or you may remember, so there's another place, there's three times in Job, but then there's another place uh, in Daniel. You might remember that when King Nebuchadnezzar looked into the fiery furnace at Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, he saw a fourth person who he described as looking like a son of the gods. So he was looking at someone, he says, that doesn't look like just a mere man, it's something else, an angelic type being. So every time this term sons of God is used in the Old Testament, it's referring to angelic beings. But there's also a couple of places in the New Testament that seem to confirm this. So the first is in 2 Peter chapter 2. So in that passage, which is also a difficult passage, admittedly, but in that passage, Peter is writing to encourage faithful believers who are encountering opposition from false prophets. And they're trying to make sense of the fact that these unrighteous people seem to be thriving well, Peter uses two examples from the Old Testament in order to make his point and encourage these believers. The two examples are Noah and Lot. And he makes this point that you can trust God to rescue his people and to bring the wicked to justice. Just like God rescued righteous Lot and punished the great wickedness of his time and place, which was Sodom and Gomorrah, and just like God preserved Noah, and punished the great wickedness of his time and place. And Peter identifies that as angels who sinned in the ancient world. Uh, another place in the New Testament is Jude. Jude, very similar to 2 Peter, he also identifies these two examples of evil in the Old Testament. This pair of examples, Sodom and Gomorrah and angels. And his words are that they left their proper dwelling. So it seems as though what we're dealing with in Genesis 6 is angels who sinned by leaving their proper dwelling and came to earth to marry human women. Now that still leaves us with a lot of questions. And frankly, there are just some details we can't know for sure. But I do believe that the evidence of Scripture leads us to that conclusion, that there's some sort of angelic influence going on here in Genesis 6. In any case, whoever these people are, what we have in Genesis 6 is clearly a perversion. The world is not the way it is supposed to be. This is not what God intended. There are boundaries being violated. God's good design has been rejected by wicked humanity, and as humanity multiplied across the world, so wickedness multiplied 
across humanity. So God responds to this perversion. He responds to this widespread wickedness in verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. At the beginning of creation, God's spirit hovered over the face of the waters, ready to give life to the world. But here, as God is preparing to judge, he's preparing to bring an end to his creatures, and he promises to remove his life-giving spirit from man. As God prepares to judge humanity, essentially what we're going to see is that he is undoing his work of creation. That's what his judgment looks like. And why will he not let his spirit remain in man forever? He says, for he is flesh, made from dust. Humans are weak. God gave us this world and we proved we couldn't handle it on our own. We drove it into the ground. So God decided that our time as humans needed to be cut short. So God says his day shall be 120 years. Now, this is another phrase that's difficult to understand. Um, but it, it seems that this is God saying that he would destroy humanity in the flood 120 years from this moment. That seems like what he is communicating here. And even though this is a statement about God's judgment, this is a remarkable demonstration of God's patience. Think about this. Not only has God allowed wicked humanity to multiply and continue living up to this point, he is still going to wait and give them another 120 years. That is patience. It's mercy. Peter says in 1 Peter 3.20 that God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. And I believe that's what we're seeing here. The merciful patience of God, even as he promises judgment. This is a great God. And as if these first three verses weren't difficult enough, Moses throws one more wrench at us in verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Okay? <laughs> so, in this verse, Moses refers to the Nephilim. And according to this verse... These are legendary figures from ancient history. And other than that, we honestly don't know a whole lot about them. Outside of the Bible, there's all sorts of myths uh, that are recorded about these mighty men of old. But all the Bible tells us for sure is that they existed. Some have understood this verse to say that the Nephilim were sort of like superhumans that were children of these marriages between angels and humans. But this verse doesn't say that. In fact, if you look at the wording, it, it says that they were already on the earth in those days. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man. So 
it actually seems more like Moses is trying to clarify that they were not the product of angel-human relations. But they did exist, but they were already on the earth at the time when this happened. They're not the product of it. They were already there. They were already on the earth. Okay, so why throw this in here? Why is Moses mentioning this at this time? Why does he want us to know that the Nephilim were on the earth? Well, as much as we would want to rush to what this has to do with us, we, we can't understand that until we understand what Moses' intent was for his original audience. And I think we get a clue in Numbers 13. In Numbers 13, so remember, Genesis is written by Moses to Israel in the wilderness. Well, in Numbers 13, God had guided the Israelites out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, through the wilderness, and all the way to the promised land. They were there. They were on the border of the promised land. And they get there, and God instructs Moses to send 12 spies into the land to check it out. But 10 of them come back with a negative report. And listen to what verses 32 and 33 say. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. So these fearful spies, these two, or these ten rather, come and they say, we can't go into the promised land. The Nephilim are in there. Now, this is what the spies said. But there's nothing in the text that demands that we accept that their report is true. Actually, if the rest of their report is any indication, we should probably expect that they are exaggerating. They refer to these legendary figures from the past, the Nephilim, and claim that they're in the promised land, so the people of Israel need to be scared for their lives. So Moses here writes Genesis for his fellow Israelites. These Israelites who have been given this negative report about these fearful, daunting people in the promised land. And it seems that what he's doing here in Genesis 6-4 is minimizing some of this exaggeration. Yes, those legendary Nephilim were real. They were on the earth at this time. But they weren't some superhuman product of angel-human relations. They too were just flesh, verse 3. Just like the Canaanites we are facing. And by the way, the Nephilim were killed in the flood at the hand of the same Yahweh God who has entered into a covenant with our nation and who is going to bring us into the promised land. The fiercest enemy cannot stand against our God. So what about us? What's the message of Genesis 6, 1-4 for us? Well, I think it's the same message that Peter had and Jude had to Christians facing perverse false teachers in the first century. I think it's the same message that Moses had to Israel facing the perverse Canaanites in the promised land. Verses 1 to 4 as a picture are daunting, and not just because they're really hard to interpret, but because the picture they paint is of great wickedness and overwhelmingly powerful beings. But the great hope of these verses comes in verse 3. What the people of God need to hear in the face of great wickedness and seemingly insurmountable opposition is this. God's got it. 
God's got it. He's, take, he's got it taken care of. Israel needed to hear this as they trembled at the thought of going into the promised land. The Christians that Peter and Jude wrote to needed to hear this as they faced false teachers in their day. And we need to hear this message too. Don't fear your enemies, people of God. You may be small in number and in power, and they may be great in wickedness and great in influence, but God has always been faithful to preserve the godly and judge the wicked. God's got it. And if it seems like God is taking a long time to deal with wickedness, don't think that God has neglected justice. No, God shows tremendous patience in delaying his judgment. Sometimes 120 years, sometimes 1,000 or thousands of years. But turn with me to 2 Peter. chapter 3. I mentioned what he wrote before, uh, but listen now to what he said to his readers to encourage them as they endured the wickedness around them and longed for Jesus to come back. 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 8 and 9. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's patience waited in the days of Noah. And God's patience is waiting today. And it isn't to make us suffer. It is God's grace toward wicked humans so that more people might repent and be saved. So as the world around us increases in wickedness, as opposition to Christianity increases, as the world increasingly becomes unfriendly to who we are and what we believe and what we value, We don't need to think of ourselves as victims. As wickedness continues, worldliness increases, and it seems as though God is just letting everything go to hell, what he is actually doing is giving more people an opportunity to go to heaven. Instead of thinking of ourselves as victims, we need to remember that if we have trusted in Jesus, we are ambassadors of this patient God. This patient God who doesn't wish for any to perish, but that all should reach repentance. So as perversion increases, remember that God's patience remains. But God's spirit will not remain in man forever. We should not fear and we should not complain, but instead we should use the time that God has given us to point more people to the God who wants to rescue them from his coming judgment. So, this first section, we see perversion and patience. Perversion of mankind and patience from God. Next, let's look at this last section, grief and grace. 
turning to Genesis 6 and verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You know, the last time that Moses told us that God saw the world, it was when he saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. My, how things have changed dramatically since then. Now God looks on the earth that he created, and he sees widespread wickedness. The humans that he created to fill the earth with his glory now fill the earth with evil. This is, this is a far-reaching statement about human wickedness, and, and not just about how broad human depravity is, but also how deep human depravity is. It is broad in that it extends into all of the earth, but it is also deep in the human heart. Every intention was only evil, continually, all the time. We see in this verse the reality of total depravity that has infected every human being since, human, uh, since Adam and Eve. Our problem is not just sins. It's not just that we make some bad choices that are disconnected from who we really are. As fallen humans, our problem is sin. We have a sin nature. It's who we are. We are not all as bad as we could be, but there is no part of us that has not been corrupted by sin in some way. The purest intentions of our heart are tainted by sin. Our most selfless thoughts are entangled with some level of selfish intent. Every intention, only evil, all the time. God sees the extensive wickedness of mankind on the earth, and he reacts in verse 6. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart, for he was sorry that he made man on the earth. Now, when we see a phrase like, the Lord regretted, we need to remember that God regrets differently than we do. First uh, Samuel 15, 29 says that the glory of Israel, God, Yahweh God, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. When we regret, it means we made a mistake. We did something that we thought was good at the time, but now we realize that it was bad. So our evaluation changes because our standard changed. Well, when God made man, he thought man was good. Now he thinks man is bad. He changed his evaluation, but not because his standard changed. His evaluation changed because man changed. 
So to say that God regretted making man is not to say that he made a mistake. It's not to say that God changed. Instead, it's an expression of his great grief over the sin of his creatures. Do you realize that your sin breaks God's heart? The Bible talks about a lot of negative emotions that God has towards sin. God hates sin. His anger burns at unrighteousness, but he is also deeply satisfied when we sin. It pains him. This is not the way it was supposed to be. It's not what he wants for us. So he grieves. This is the effect of our sin on God. And then in verse 7, we see the effect that sin will have on humanity. The consequence of sin that will come as a result of God's grief over sin. Verse 7, so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. God decides to wipe out man from the surface of the earth. The picture is of someone scraping food off of a dish. God is going to wipe the earth clean of every living creature on the earth. We see here, again, this idea that God's judgment is essentially the reversal of creation. God's going to remove his life-giving spirit that once hovered over the unformed earth like we saw, and he is going to take the life of every creature that he made. This is a holy God, and this is the just punishment that wickedness deserves. Total annihilation. But wait. In this dark night of human depravity, with God's judgment on the horizon, there's one little bright spot that shines in verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Why did Noah find favor in the eyes of the Lord? It's because he was so righteous? Well, verse 9 tells us that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, but that verse comes in a, in a new section, and it only comes after this verse, in which Noah already has the favor of the Lord. There's one other person that the Old Testament describes this way. Uh, turn with me just to the next book, Exodus 33. Look at verses 17 to 19 of Exodus 33. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. 
Moses did not find favor in the sight of the Lord because of his righteousness. And neither did Noah. These men found favor in the eyes of the Lord because the Lord is gracious to whom he is gracious. And he shows mercy to whom he will show mercy. What Noah receives from the Lord is grace. Grace. Noah deserved to be annihilated with the rest of humanity. Noah had a sinful nature too. Noah was corrupted in every part of his heart too. What set Noah apart was not that he was better than everyone else, but that God graciously chose to give him undeserved favor. Grace. It was this grace of God that meant that Noah would be rescued from judgment. This judgment that God was going to bring on all of the world. It was this grace of God that led to Noah's righteousness and blamelessness. It was the grace of God that gave Noah an escape. And the grace of God is our only escape too. Because as we look at the widespread and deep-reaching depravity of humanity, we need to be humbled by the reality that we are all infected with this same corruption. The same corruption as humanity in Genesis 6 has come to each one of us in every part of our sinful flesh. Total depravity touches all of us. And lest you think that we're victims of something out of our control, let me remind you of a verse that we read last week and we've read multiple times since we've been in Genesis. Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Yes, sin spread to all of us by birth, but we have also willfully, deliberately sinned against God. We are not victims. We are perpetrators. And like Genesis 6-5 shows us, this sin corrupts every part of us, every intention of the thoughts of our heart. We cannot say, well, I know I did wrong, but I meant well. We cannot say, well, I made a bad choice, but I have a good heart. That is not what the Bible says about our wicked, sinful flesh. There are no 100% pure motives in a sinner's heart. Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jesus said in Matthew 15, 19, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Paul says in Romans 3, 10 through 12, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Again, in verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 7, 18, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is my flesh. There is absolutely nothing in our flesh that is pure. There is absolutely nothing in us that pleases God. There is absolutely nothing in us that can earn God's favor or turn back the annihilation that we rightly deserve for the mountain 
of unrighteousness that we have piled up. There is only one escape. Grace. Grace. God's undeserved favor. We do not deserve God's favor. But we also don't have to wonder whether or not we can get in on this favor. We don't have to fear God running out of grace. Paul writes in Ephesians 1, 7, and 8, In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Jesus died on a cross. He shed his blood, taking the full weight of the judgment of God that every one of us deserved. And because he did, anyone, anyone who places their faith in Jesus can have their trespasses, their wickedness, their perversion, their depravity totally forgiven, wiped clean. Because Jesus died, he made a way for the doors of the treasury of heaven to swing wide and for God's grace to pour lavishly on any one of us. So don't hold on to your good intentions or your so-called good motives or your good heart. Don't cling to your pride. Don't try to stand on your own two feet and hope to be accepted by God because you think that you're good enough or strong enough or wise enough. And don't keep holding on to your sin. Don't keep holding on to the reins of your own life, controlling your own destiny. Don't keep living for your glory or your kingdom. Let it go. Repent. Whether it's your first time or your millionth time, let it go. Repent of those things and place your faith solely in Jesus. Receive his grace that he wants to lavish upon you. Throw yourself on the mercy of God. Receive the favor that Jesus bought you. Stand in the forgiveness that his death earned for you. Receive the righteousness that he can clothe you in. Take hold of this free gift of life and hope and peace and love that his blood As perversion becomes great, we need to remember that God's got it. He is patient, and those in Christ are ambassadors of the patient God. The patient God who wants to rescue as many people as possible from his coming judgment. And we need to take this message of God's undeserved favor that he will bestow on anyone in Christ to as many people as possible as long as God's patience continues in our day. And when we are overwhelmed by the widespread and deep-rooted wickedness of our own hearts, that wickedness that grieves God's heart, we need to trust in the grace of God. Sin is great, but God is greater. Let's pray. Father, the extent of sin 
is deeper than we want to admit. The ways we fall short are further and farther than we could possibly admit and still have confidence in our righteousness. Lord, we, we are desperately in need of your grace. And you have generously poured it out from Calvary. So Lord, I pray that there is no one in this room who would rather have their self-righteousness than the blood of Jesus. I pray that there is no one in this room who would choose the pleasures of sin over the riches of your grace. Lord, whether it's our first time or our millionth time, I pray that right now in our heart before you, we would repent. That we would admit that we are not good, but you are. That we would admit that we have sinned against you, against others, against ourselves. That we deserve nothing but your coming judgment. And Lord, I pray that we would throw ourselves on your mercy. That we would trust in nothing less than the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to give us righteousness, forgiveness, transformation, eternal life. Lord, I pray that we would find our confidence, our rest, our hope only in Jesus. This is amazing grace that you have extended. And so, Lord, I pray that even now in our hearts, we would let go of everything else that we find confidence in besides Jesus. Would we know and feel and live in the good of your grace and the peace that we can have with you only in Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.